I always feel like such a disappointment when I walk up. You guys are expecting Clint Eastwood and you get me. Sorry about that. I want to make a couple of comments before we look into the scriptures this morning about what I think our response should be to the Supreme Court ruling uh, on Friday regarding Roe versus Wade. I think the first thing that I want to say is that we should always be gracious in our comments, personally and on social media. And the reason is that there is a diversity of opinion, even among us, about what is right, what is wrong with respect to the constitutionality of abortion. Not necessarily with the morality of abortion, but with the constitutionality of abortion. And so I think we always want to make sure that we're very, very gracious in what we say to one another. I think we want to make sure that we don't assume that everyone in the room agrees with our opinion on this issue. I think we also need to remember that opinions don't save people. Only grace through faith in Jesus Christ saves people. And finally, I think we always love people who persecute us. That's what Christ did. That's what we're called to do as a body of believers. Love people who persecute the church. Let's pray. Father, these are the very moments in which the light of the world can be seen most clearly in times of polarization and conflict and, and disagreement, violence. You call your church to be a beacon of hope and peace and unity and love and mercy in the name of Christ. You also call us to care deeply for all of the most vulnerable in our culture, poor widows, children, immigrants, Regardless of the constitutional and political processes, you call us to care about all of them as a reflection of your love for the marginalized uh, in society. We're reminded this morning that Christ became weak for us and that he showed love and mercy even to his enemies. Let us as a church see people uh, not as opinions, not as opponents, but as people whom you love. We pray for all of our political leaders. We pray for wisdom and for a love of justice for them. But in the end, Lord, we trust in you, in your sovereignty. We do not place our, place our trust in political parties, uh, the United States Constitution, and the Supreme Court. We place our trust in you and in you alone. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Turn in your Bibles this morning, if you would, to 1 Kings chapter 16. 1 Kings chapter 16. We are in the third week of a series called The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, which we've been looking at six of the lesser-known kings of Israel. We've looked so far at two kings that most people don't know about. One was named Rehoboam. Uh, we talked about him in the first week. Last week we looked at King Asa. This morning we're going to look at a king by the name of Ahab. Now, just a reminder that Israel has experienced a civil war at this point, and it is divided, as we've talked about, into two kingdoms. Uh, one in the north, one in the south. The one in the north retained the name Israel. The one in the south took the name Judah. Now, Ahab is a king of the northern kingdom, Israel. And I want to just jump right in here because Ahab is a, is a bad, bad dude, and I want to show you how uh, the Old Testament describes 
Ahab. Start reading it, chapter 16, verse 29. 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse uh, 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Amri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Amri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all of the kings of Israel before him. One word, one word here, and that is, wow. I mean, this is quite the introduction. He did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of the kings before him. Made, made God more angry than all of the kings before him. Now that's really something. This is a way of saying that Ahab was a bad, bad dude. And to make matters worse, he married Jezebel. Jezebel. For many years, even in modern culture, to call a woman a Jezebel was to call her the worst name that you could think of. Like if you, if you ever hear someone say of a woman, she's a Jezebel, and then they shudder, this is the Jezebel that they're talking about. Ahab is a bad, bad dude, and he's married to a queen who's a bad, bad woman, and together they make one bad, bad power couple. One commentator described him like this. He said, Ahab was the vile human toad who squatted on the throne, and Jezebel was the beautiful adder coiled beside the toad. <laughs> That's pretty bad. That's a pretty bad review. Now here's why he says that. The marriage between Ahab and Jezebel was a politically strategic arranged marriage. Jezebel was the daughter of a neighboring pagan king with whom Ahab wanted an alliance. And once married, these two went on a systematic campaign to turn Israel into a religiously pluralistic society which is contrary to God's will. I don't know if you noticed, in the verses that we read, the name Baal was mentioned four different times. That's how Ahab is associated, not with the God of Israel, but with Baal, and then also Asherah, another God. After, 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 after all, the first of the Ten Commandments to Israel was, you shall have no other gods before me. Ahab was supposed to rule Israel under God's authority and lead the people as a worshiper of God. But none of this mattered to these two people. Jezebel brought 400 prophets of the idol Baal and 450 prophets of Asherah. And as I said, both of these were nature gods. They brought them into Israel. She put them on the government payroll and then she sent them out to practice. And in the process, many of the prophets of God were thrown out and, and, and murdered. This is why this guy describes these two in this way. This is the spiritual climate of Israel during Ahab's reign. It wasn't good. Now what I want to do is I, I, I want to look at uh, an account from the end of Ab, uh, Ahab's reign in chapter 22. Uh, First Kings devotes six chapters to Ahab's story. We don't have time to go into all, uh, all of those stories, but we're going to look at just one narrative from the very end of Abraham's reign. We'll look, we'll kind of walk all the way through that narrative, uh, or at least most of the way through it, and then we'll come back at the very end and we'll kind of tie together and surface some of the principles that the passage uh, brings out. 
Verse 1 of chapter 22. Let's read from there. Verse 1 of chapter 22. This is the end of Ahab's reign. For three years there was no war between Aram and Israel, or Aram and Israel. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went down to see the king of Israel. The king of Israel had said to his officials, Don't you know that Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us, and yet we are doing nothing to retake it from the king of Aram. Now don't get lost in all of these names. Bottom line, the king of Aram owes Ahab some land that Ahab wants now. Jehoshaphat is a good and godly king of the southern kingdom, Judah. And he went to visit Ahab on what was probably an ill-advised but well-intentioned trip to create unity between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. While there, Ahab asks Jehoshaphat, look at this in verse 4. So he asked Jehoshaphat, will you go with me uh, to fight against Ramoth-Gilead? In other words, to get this land... That, is, that I believe belongs to me. Would you, would you go with me and, and fight? And Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. In other words, yes, I'm in. We'll fight with you as one people. But, but, look at verse 5. Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, first... Seek the counsel of the Lord. In other words, let's make sure that God is in this battle before we go into it. Let's, let's consult the Lord. Now, the way that was done back then was to consult a prophet of God. A prophet, had, a prophet of God had two functions, and you can summarize them with two words, foretelling and forthtelling. Foretelling and foretelling. Foretelling was repeating something that God had revealed to them about specific events in the future that they couldn't possibly know without God having revealed it. Okay? So that's foretelling. Now, foretelling was speaking a message to the people of Israel and the people of Judah that God had revealed to the prophet, something that God specifically wanted to say to them. Now, that's not how God communicates to us today. He communicates to us through his written word, but that's how God communicated uh, with the nation back then. So verse 6, the king of Israel brought together the prophets. Now remember, Jehoshaphat said, can we inquire of a prophet of God? Ahab says, okay, so he brings together the prophets, about 400 men, and he asked them, Shall I go to war against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? Go, they answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. Now, uh, let me just say, first of all, that in my experience, if you can get 400 religious leaders to agree on anything, that's an amazing thing. Like, it must be unanimous from the Lord, huh, that, that 400 religious leaders agree. But what's the problem? What's the problem here? Well, the problem is that these prophets that he's brought together are the false prophets of the pagan gods. And not only are they false prophets, but they're also on Ahab's payroll. And I'll ask you the same question this week that I asked last week. How many people on a wealthy, corrupt, powerful politician's payroll are willing to speak truth to power? What's the answer? None. Nil. Zilch. Void. That's precisely why they're on the payroll. 
to tell him what he wants to hear. Ahab wants to hear, go to war, you're going to win. So they say, yes, go to war, you're sure to win. 400 pagan payroll prophets all telling King Ahab exactly what he wants to hear, exactly what he better hear if they want to stay on his payroll. Now Jehoshaphat sees all of this for what it is. And he asks in verse 7, Is there not a prophet of the Lord here? whom we can inquire of? Like, isn't there just what? Isn't there, can't you find a prophet of God? I mean, you've got these prophets of Baal, you've got these prophets of, of, of Asherah, you've got all these false prophets here, 800, you know, 400 of them here. Can we not find one prophet? One prophet of God? Ahab answers, There is still one man through whom we can inquire of the Lord. One prophet in all of Israel only, there's 400 false prophets, only one prophet in all of Israel who's a prophet of God. That's the spiritual climate. It says, there is still one man through whom we can inquire of the Lord. I, lo I, I love this. He says, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He is Micaiah's son of don't you love it? I hate him because he's so negative about me. I hate him. I avoid him. If I see him coming, I tell my assistant, tell him I'm too busy to meet. If I run into him on the town, I walk the other way. If he starts to speak to me, I put my fingers in my ears and start saying, la, 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 la. He's like, I can't, I hate this guy. But Jehoshaphat, nonetheless, insists on getting this prophet who speaks truth. And so Ahab reluctantly sends for him. Now in the interest of time, I want you to skip down to verse 13. The messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah said to him, look, the other prophets, without exception, are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. What's he saying? He's saying, do not disagree. Make sure you agree. Tell him what he wants to hear. Let's skip down to verse 15. When he arrived, the king asked him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead or not? Micaiah responds, attack and be victorious, he answered. For the Lord will give it into the king's hand. Now, what's Micaiah doing? Well, he knows this king doesn't want to hear the truth, so he's being sarcastic. He's telling him what he wants to hear. Go ahead, attack. That's what he's doing. In fact, it's so shocking that, that he's told Ahab what he wants to hear that Ahab says in verse 16, how many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Then Micaiah answered. Now he's going to tell him the truth. He says, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, these people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. What's he saying? What's he saying? He's saying to Ahab, you are not the shepherd of God's people that a king of Israel is supposed to be. <laughs> then Ahab turns to Jehoshaphat and says, verse 18, didn't I tell you? He never prophesies anything good about me, but only bad. <laughs> See, I told you he's a Debbie Downer, he's a pessimist, not one thing that's good. Now in the next few verses, Micaiah tells Ahab a very elaborate and dramatic story about Ahab, about how Ahab is going to lose the battle and he's going to die. He ends with this. Look at the last part of verse 23. 
The Lord has decreed disaster for you. Now, how do you think Ahab responds to that? How do you think he responds to that, that truth? Well, he hates it. Skip down to verse 26. The king of Israel then ordered, Take Micaiah, send him back to Ammon, the ruler of the city, and Joash, the king's son, and say, This is what the king says. Put this fellow in prison and give him nothing but bread and water until I return safely. Micaiah declared, If you ever return safely, the Lord has not spoken through me. And then he added, Mark my words, all you people. I want to stop here uh, for just a moment. We'll come back in a few minutes to the very end of the story. But I want to stop here because there, there's, there are three questions that this passage surfaces that, that I want to linger over for a few moments. Uh, the first question has to do with Ahab's hatred of truth. Now, I'll state the question specifically in just a moment for you, but let me just say that it starts out... We'll, 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 this first question has to do with Ahab's hatred of the truth. Micaiah represents the truth of God here, and Ahab pulls no punches when he says that he hates him. In fact, he hates him. He hates Micaiah, and he hates the truth so much that he has him in prison. Shut him up, lock him up, make it illegal to talk about the truth, make it go away. And actually, things haven't changed that much, have they? Jesus once claimed, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Is it a coincidence that in 2022, Christianity is illegal in over 50 countries around the world? <laughs> we respond to truth the same today as Ahab did way back then, don't we? In America, it might not be illegal to speak truth yet, but culturally we hate truth and we want to squelch it, don't we? In fact, even here in Evansville, imagine for the moment, let me just, imagine for the moment that a man is speaking to an auditorium of people somewhere here in Evansville. Let's say it's like a, it's like a, uh, a TEDx talk. You know TED Talks, except they're local, they'd be called a TEDx talk. He walks out onto the stage and, you know, when, you, when you're speaking to a group of people, the first thing you want to do, you want to get their attention somehow. So the first thing he does is he says to the audience, I've been married to the same woman for over 42 years. What would happen? What would happen? Well, I, I think the audience would probably applaud. That's great. I mean, that's so rare that you see that these days. People would probably applaud. He's got their attention. Imagine that after the, after the applause dies down, the second thing he says is this. I believe lifelong monogamy between a man and a woman is the biblical standard God has for all married men and women, for all people, in all cultures, in all times. <laughs> what do you think the response to that would be? See, I think they'd boo him off the stage. Shut him up. Don't impose that on us. If that's your ethic, if that's the way you want to live, fine. But don't, do, don't you dare impose that standard on us. Now why? Why is that the instinctive response to truth, to squelch it, to reject it? You ever thought about that? And let me just, here it is. Here's the question that I want to think about for just a moment. Here's, here's the first, quest, first question. What is it about truth that we find so objectionable 
What is it about truth that we find so objectionable? I mean, think about it like this. In the, in, this is the least significant of terms. Why is it that a celebrity, when they, have, when they do a close-up in a, in a movie or TV show, they want the most filtered lights? Why is that? Why is it that lawyers hate lawyer jokes? Because <laughs> they're the truth. Uh, why is it that couples wait till it's too late before they get counseling? Something about truth that we just hate. We find it so objectionable. What is it about truth that we find so objectionable? It's this. The human heart hates anything that threatens its self-sovereignty. The human heart hates anything that threatens its self-sovereignty. The human heart wants more than anything else to be its own master and its own lord. I want to make the decisions for my life about what's right and what's wrong. I don't want anybody telling me those things. I want to make those decisions for myself. Anything that, tre- that threatens our self-sovereignty triggers hatred. We want to keep it at arm's length. We want to relativize it. We want to squelch it, shut it up, imprison it, make it illegal, even kill it. Which is, of course, what humanity did to Jesus. We didn't like the fact that he said he was the truth. And so we shut him up for good, didn't we? Or at least we tried. The human heart hates anything that threatens its self-sovereignty. And that leads to the second question that I want to linger over for just a moment. And this one has to do... With idols, Ahab loved idols. He listened to the prophets of the idols instead of Yahweh. Jezebel loved idols. If you read the history of Israel in the Old Testament, they were forever struggling with idols. Here's the question. What is it that is so enticing about idols? Like why are they, why, why, were, why did Israel struggle with them? Why did Ahab love them? Why do you and I have idols? What is it that's so enticing about idols? Well, we should probably define what an idol is. An idol, here's the definition, an idol is a god whom you have designed. That's it. It's a god whom you have designed, which makes it an extension of your mind. And because it's an extension of your mind, an idol is a god whom you can control. An idol doesn't demand anything from you that you don't want to give. It is a God who never contradicts you, a God who does what you want, a God who never does anything that confounds or dumbfounds you. An idol is a God in your little designer box. And if you think about it, the thing that's so attractive about an idol has to do really with the same thing that makes truth so repulsive to us. An idol... This is what's so attractive about idols. An idol allows me to keep my self-sovereignty. It lets me make my own decisions. Never tells me what to do that I don't want to do already. Never contradicts me. Never confounds me. Never dumbfounds me. Never crosses me. It always allows me to keep my self-sovereignty. That's what's so enticing about idols. 
The late uh, theologian and professor, Dr. R.C. Sproul, once told a story. Uh, some of you will be too young to remember any or to, to recognize any of the names in this, but um, Sproul told a story about watching an old talk show by a guy uh, that was hosted by a guy by the name of David Frost. Any, any of you remember David Frost? This is a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't remember it, but I know some of you are old enough to remember it. Um, Frost was interviewing the famous activist atheist Madeleine Murray O'Hare. And as they were debating whether there was a God, Frost was actually losing the debate because Madeleine Murray O'Hare was a very, very smart woman. And so in desperation, as he's losing the debate, Frost turns to the studio audience and he says, how many of you, how many of you believe in God? And almost everybody raised their hand. And Sproul says that he makes the point that, that if Madeleine Murray O'Hare would have just thought for just a moment and rephrased the question that Frost asked to the audience, if, he, if she would have just rephrased it a little bit, it would have changed the audience's response. Here's what Sproul said. He said, if she would have asked, how many of you believe in the God of the Bible? The God who, when he descends on Mount Sinai, says anybody who touches the mountain must be killed. The God who says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. The God who, when he's president in the Ark of the Covenant and someone touches that Ark, they die. The God who has Job go through horrendous suffering and then he shows up at the end of the book of Job and says, I'm not going to even tell you why it happened to you. I just want you to trust me because I'm God and you're not. How many of you believe in that God? <laughs> Sproul says, uh, I doubt anybody would have raised their hand to that question. See, this is what an idol is. It's a, it's a God who doesn't ever say those kinds of things or do those kinds of things. It's a God who never crosses you, doesn't ever demand anything from you, never contradicts you, never says anything that you don't want to hear. The problem, though, is that an idol that you design, that you carve, it's a dead idol. It's not a living God. It's just a dead idol. There are two uh, such gods who come to my mind this morning. We have lots of idols in our culture, but there, there are two that I'm thinking of this morning. One is the God of religious legalism. This God is common in many different religions, Islam, Buddhism, Mormonism. In fact, there are many ostensibly Christian churches who worship this false God. This God, this God says, here's the code of conduct to follow to be on my good side. You want blessings? You want to be saved? Uh, you want to prosper? Follow all of my rules. Now, legalistic religious people love this God because this God is an extension of them. They are rule followers, so this God is impressed by rule following and discipline. Remember, he's an extension of who they are. They love that. This God doesn't contradict the religious legalist by saying something like this. Even at your best, your rule following is filled with selfishness and toxic hatred and judgmentalness, and so your rule keeping is filthy rags before me. No, 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 no. The religious legalistic God would never say something like that. He'd never cross them like that. He's a God of their imagination. 
Another God that comes to my mind is the God that many people in our culture love to worship. This is the God who just loves everyone and doesn't judge anyone. The God I worship is all loving and never judges anyone, never condemns anyone. You've heard that many, many times before from people. People love this God because he also is an extension of their imagination. He would never contradict, he'd never contradict you by saying something like, you're a sinner who deserves eternal judgment. Now he'd never say, they would hate that God. They'd want to shut that God up. You see, the thing that's so enticing about idols is that an idol allows me to keep my self-sovereignty. That's what we love so much about idols. They allow us to decide who God is, what we're going to do in response to him, what we're going to obey, what we're not going to obey. That's what we like so much. Which leads me to the third question that this passage surfaces, and it's the question of who is sovereign? Is it the human self? Or is it the God of Israel? The God of scriptures? Who is sovereign? It's really the ultimate question of this passage. Who determines reality? Does Ahab get to determine what is true for himself and shut down truth? Does he get to create a God in his own image who never challenges him, never confounds him, never dumbfounds him, never thwarts his plans? Do you get to define who God is? Who is sovereign? Is God self-existent, self-defined, sovereign over all of reality, or are you? Well, Ahab and Jehoshaphat go to battle with the king of Aram despite the fact that Micaiah has prophesied disaster and death for King Ahab. It's a poor decision on Jehoshaphat's part to go to battle with Ahab. It's a characteristic one on Ahab's part. Ahab's a pretty slick character. And so he decides that he's going to hedge his bets here. He knows the king of Aram is after him personally. He's not interested in Jehoshaphat. He's after him, Ahab. So he hedges his bets. And he says to Jehoshaphat, I'll tell you what, Jehoshaphat, you go to war in your royal robes, looking resplendent like a king should look. I'll disguise myself as a warrior. In other words, it's like Jehoshaphat is wearing a great big glowing neon sign that says, I'm the king. And Ahab is walking around disguised saying, yeah, he's the king. Jehoshaphat, apparently not the brightest bulb in the box, agrees to this. And they go to war. Well, the Arameans see Jehoshaphat in his royal robes and sure enough, they think they've cornered Ahab only to realize that it's not Ahab after all, it's Jehoshaphat. And so they call off the kill. But just as the soldiers are getting ready to call it a day, one of the archers has an extra, he's got an extra arrow back here. And he says to himself, no use keeping this. Like, if I keep this, the sergeant's going to think I wasn't doing my job, I wasn't trying to kill anybody, so, I, so I'll get rid of this. Verse 34 puts it this way. But someone drew his bow at random. Just pulled it, 
Didn't aim it. Just boom, lets it fly. Remember the question, who's sovereign? Who's sovereign? Is it Ahab? Or is it God? God has said through the prophet, disaster and death. Ahab says, eh, eh, I'll decide that. So he tries to play it cool. He tries to hedge his bets. Who's sovereign? Notice what the text says. It hit the king of Israel. The arrow hit the king of Israel between the sections of his armor. Skip down to verse 37. So the king died and was brought to Samaria and they buried him there. Who's sovereign? Who's sovereign? What should you take away from a passage like this one? Here's one thing. Ignoring truth puts you at great risk. Trying to ignore the truth puts you at great risk. No matter how cleverly you, you defend yourself against it, it will find you. It will always find you. It can't, truth cannot be avoided. It cannot be ignored. Some people try to defend themselves against truth by ignoring it, never thinking about truth. But here's the thing. If there are absolute truths in the universe and you don't want to discover them, it's like closing your eyes while you're driving. Truth will find you whether you try to ignore it or not. Other people try to defend themselves against truth. Well, they, they use doubt as a disguise. They say, well, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if there's absolute truth or not in the universe. But, you know, there's a kind of doubt that actually wants answers, and there's a kind of doubt that doesn't want answers. Which kind of doubt do you have? No matter how cleverly you disguise yourself, truth will always find you. Um, even people who don't know the scriptures much, uh, they know this saying, the truth shall set you what? Free. free. From what? What will it set you free from? Well, it'll set you free from the danger of self-sovereignty. That's what it sets you free from, from the danger of self-sovereignty. Truth will always find you. There's something else that I think this passage speaks to us about. And that is that self-made gods cannot protect you from God's judgment. Self-made gods cannot protect you from God's judgment. I know no one wants to hear that God judges. No one wants to hear that there's a judgment coming, that no one can escape because we're all sinners. But that's what the Bible says. And the God that you create that says, if you just follow all of my rules, you'll be blessed, that God won't save you from judgment. Because there's no way you can, there's no way a sinful person can follow all of the rules of a perfectly holy God. 
And then the God that says, well, you know, that you, you've created, some of you have created, that says, I love everybody, nobody's going to be judged. Well, that God can't save you either because there is going to be a judgment. There's an arrow that has already been shot from the bow in heaven that has your name on it, and that arrow is the arrow of judgment when you will stand before Almighty God. But unlike Ahab, there is a sovereign, there is a king who is willing to step in front of the arrow of God's judgment for you. I always say, you know, that every story in the Old Testament is intended to point us to Christ. Even if it's a negative example like Ahab, Christ is the opposite of Ahab, you see? He's the anti-Christ. Christ is willing to step in, Christ was willing to step in front of that arrow of God's judgment for you. Christ in his death on the cross became sin for you and me. Didn't avoid the suffering of the cross nor the judgment of God for sin. And right now, your sin is either on you or it's on Christ. If you by faith receive him, then he bears that sin for you. He becomes your savior and your sovereign. And you will never have to come into judgment because the arrows of God's judgment fell upon him. But your self-made God's They'll never save you from that judgment. Never, ever. Just bow you with me for prayer. What's your attitude toward truth? Do you seek it? Do you want to know if there's truth? What's your attitude toward truth? And what's your, what's your false God, your idol God that you've created in your own mind? Lord Jesus Christ, we want to thank you for what you've done for us on the cross and that you, in your death on the cross, have spared us the judgment of God by being judged for us. You became sin on our behalf. For those here this morning that may be counting on their good works, their goodness, their ability to follow rules for their salvation, Lord, would you impress it upon their heart today that they are a sinner and that even their best attempts at following rules are laced with or tinged with self-centeredness and toxic hatred and judgmentalness. And then, Lord, for those who may be saying, well, you know, God, I worship, loves everybody, but doesn't judge anyone. Lord, would you impress upon their heart that you do love people, but you are also holy. And because of that, there is a judgment. And would you impress it upon everyone's hearts that Christ took that judgment for us. Would you bring those here this morning who've never maybe understood that, never come to a place where they have trusted in him, would you just give them a sense of how deeply you love them, so much so that you sent your son to die on a cross for them, that they're both worse sinners than they ever could have imagined and more deeply loved than they could have ever imagined at the same time. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. 
And it's in your name we pray. Amen.